Open your Bibles, Romans chapter 12. Last week we hung out in verse 11 of chapter 12. We're picking up verse uh, 12 this week. And it was, to be honest with you, it was a relatively easy passage to preach. And I don't know if that's because it leans towards um, kind of my, my thing or not, or, or just because it, it seemed so inspirational, um, so driven. I mean, how, how could it not? Where Paul's simple three-phrase instruction is, uh, because of the love of God, then just, just work really hard, church. And, and love him much, like feel it deeply and, and serve the Lord. That's such an inspirational kind of, um, it almost reminds me of a, like a Mel Gibson Braveheart moment, you know, and he's standing in front of his guys and he says, they can take our lives, but they can't take our, it's so inspirational, you know. And so Paul kind of like screams out in verse 11 um, to work really hard and care very deeply and, and serve, serve the Lord. And, and I guess in essence, we can paraphrase it to, that we get to serve Jesus with everything we've got. If you want to just boil it down, and that, that's a, that seems to be an easy thing to, to talk about. Verse 12, I mean, verse 11, if you, if you want to look at it this way, it's much like a, let's go take the hill. It's, let's, let's go get it done for the king. Verse 12 is, is not like that at all. If, if verse 11 looks very proactive and very inspirational, and let's take the hill kind of a verse. Verse, verse 12 is, is more like this. Let's hold our ground. Let's be strong. And uh, because what Paul implies here in this verse, in three encouragements, is the reality of, of problems and the reality of opposition and pain in the Christian life. Okay? And so now you know why. We've got to look at this thing very closely because most people wouldn't willingly choose to sign up for problems and pain, okay? That's why, that's why we got to look at this like, okay, let's, let's hold our ground in our faith in, in the midst of that kind of thing, which, by the way, isn't a very popular message if you're just looking at normative Christianity out there as it's portrayed on TV or top-seller books. And, and to be honest with you, and I, I hate to stereotype everybody so much, but that doesn't sell too well. It doesn't draw the numbers, what does is if you tell them God's really into your happiness and he really wants you healthy and, and he wants you healthy and he wants you rich. That, that sells. Now, who wouldn't want to hear that? And so what's perpetrated on the church, and I use that term very loosely, is this idea that God is more interested in you than he is in him, which is heresy. Shouldn't have to tell you that, but you should know that. I don't know if you noticed, there's a, there's a little video. I'm not even going to tell you who, but it's kind of been going viral this week by a very predominant television preacher ministry, okay? This is what they said. I don't know if it was last Sunday or in the last week or month. Now, tell me if you spot anything wrong in this paragraph. I just want to encourage every one of us to realize that when we obey God, we're not doing it for God. I mean, that's one way to look at it. We're doing it for ourselves because God takes pleasure when we're happy. That's the thing that gives him the greatest joy. So I want you to know this morning, just do good for your own self. Do good because God wants you to be happy. When you come to church, when you worship him, you're not doing it for God, really. You're doing it for yourself because that's what makes God happy. See any problems? Okay, good. I'm glad I don't have to preach that. Um, 
That's what's perpetrated out there. That God is interested in you so much that he'll sacrifice himself to, to, to just, just to make you happy. And yet you would have a serious problem with most of what's written in this book if you believe that. Because these are some of the things that the scriptures say. Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange was happening to you. Peter just implied that you should know this. It isn't strange to suffer. Philippians 1, verse 29, Paul said, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Jesus said in Luke 14, Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. There is, there is the object of pain and torture and sacrifice that Jesus says the Christian must pick up and carry to follow Christ. Now that message there is radically different than what you hear. Here's what the scriptures are clear about. That disappointment and trouble and tribulation and loss and pain are part of the Christian life. That's just the way it is. And if that's not your experience, just wait. Okay? I know some people, I know God doesn't just do that and allow that to happen to everybody all at the same time. But somewhere, if you live long enough, you're going to know, yeah, that's true. Trouble is a part of this Christian life. Pain is part of it. So just like last week, we spent some time uh, putting in context verse 11. We've got to do the same this week. And I'm very sensitive to this, and there's a reason for that, is because I know that in these very pragmatic one-off statements that Paul is making here, our natural tendency is to create law out of it, like a list out of it, and that's not Paul's intention. That's what he said in verse 1 of chapter 12. Look at it. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, that mercies of God is basically pointing to the last 11 chapters of God's grace extended to blind, dead sinners who don't ask for it, don't deserve it, and don't earn it, okay? In view of what God has done exclusively for people who, who by faith trust in Christ, he begins to lay out for us what we look like in Christ, okay? Not a list to make ourselves acceptable, not a, not a list to save ourselves, but simply an expression of what God does in people who've been saved by Jesus. Make sense? Okay, so it's essential that we get that. The other thing is to understand how, how do these phrases fall in the context of the communication of love? Because isn't that what he says here in the beginning of verse 9? Let love be genuine. Let it be authentic. Paul is unpacking for us, and we told you last week, what it means, like in essence, like the details of loving God, heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. These things, if, the, if you take them out of what it means to love God like that and love people like that, will we'll mess up the context. They'll just become little one-off statements. But they fit in a, in a series of, of thoughts for Paul regarding love. So, at some of this, this might be a little bit confusing because I say it's about love and you look at those words and you go, how does, how does these phrases fit into love? This is what he says, verse 12. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Well, I, I know this, that every week I, I, I want to do this. I want to pray that the Holy Spirit is the one who does the teaching and we don't mess it up. So I'd like to stop right now and pray and ask God to make this really crystal for us as we understand the topic of love. So let's pray together. God, I thank you that we can trust you. Thank you that your words are true and right and good and pure, and they bring life to dead hearts. God, I thank you that we can depend on your spirit to um, take this 
this verse and press it upon our lives, whether to bring encouragement or to bring conviction, either way, and ultimately to guard your glory. God, let, let us say much about you today. Let, let us leave here today thinking that this, you're the point of life, that your glory and your majesty and your control and your sovereignty is what you're about, and that you invited sinners into that by grace and in Christ. God, help us not to forget that, we pray. Amen. Three simple phrases. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. What does patience in hope and tribulation in prayer have to do with love? Let me give a really simple way to understand this. Because the ultimate excuse not to love others and not to love Jesus is when we're going through tribulation. Be honest with yourself. How do you behave when the pressure's on? How do you behave when there are things that are going wrong that you just don't want to go wrong or when you've struggled or whatever? What do you do when it comes to this truth, to love God at heart, soul, mind, and strength and love others? I'll tell you what you do. I've kind of broke down this in two perspectives. I want you to see very clearly um, the reality of, of a self motivated or self-driven suffering that I think the scriptures talk about. Um, there, is a, uh, there is a consequence to ch- decisions that we make, right? The self-imposed suffering, the kind that, that happens when we sin against our wives or sin against our husbands or when we hurt other people or, or when we have a rebel's heart or when we just make stupid choices based on selfish inclinations and we pay the price for that. There isn't, there isn't anything else that could explain why we suffer so much than our own dumb decisions. Let's just be blunt, okay? I call that self-imposed suffering. I've been guilty of a lot of self-imposed suffering. Most people I know, if they're honest, would say, yeah, I probably am my worst enemy when it comes to suffering. Because it's my stupid decisions, and it's my mouth, and it's my selfishness, and it's my actions that have hurt and wounded not only other people, but, but me, okay? And here's what happens, okay? Here's what happens when we go through what I call self-imposed suffering. We, we get selfish. We go underground. We get distant. From the church, we kind of walk away from worship. We don't fellowship with others. We don't give anything away. We're hunkering down and trying to survive. We get farther away from God, not closer to him. A lot of people choose to get angry with God. Like he could have done something. Wonder if he cares, wonder if he's there when we are under the pressure of self-imposed suffering. Make sense? There's this other aspect of suffering called the, uh, the, uh, the idea of, of God-imposed suffering. These are things that just, you got to write them off to the, the sovereignty of God. When we lose a loved one, when someone gets sick, when there's some kind of accident, when there's some, and this is rare in America, some kind of rejection of the Jesus in us. That would be called persecution. Now, that's very, very rare in America, but when people hate Jesus in us, that would be part of that God-imposed suffering. And even under those circumstances, we're not necessarily instinctively good at responding to that kind of pressure and trouble either. And I think more, more times than not, you see people respond with, with forgetfulness to God. We know the scriptures say 
that God works everything out for the good of those who love him and put called according to his purpose. But when we're under unfair, God-authored, sovereignty of God trouble, we forget that truth. And we complain and we whine. This, this can't be good, and this isn't about refinement whatsoever. And, and so we demonstrate it by a lot of complaining. Or we isolate ourselves from others. And our attitude wouldn't be defined as joy. And we question the goodness of God. And so these words in verse 12 are absolutely critical to understanding the subject of love. Because Paul gives us three responses to trouble, to tribulation, that keep us moving forward in love for God and love for others. If the ultimate excuse to step out and step away from love is when trouble comes and the Bible promises the church that trouble's coming, then here's what Paul says in verse 12 to keep us pushing forward in love, okay? Very simple context. Make sense? The first thing he says, to rejoice in hope. Rejoice in hope. Now, let me back up and just make a point. This is not, this is not a, like a certain conclusion for everybody. If you're under um, self-imposed suffering right now, if your life stinks because of you, you're not going to find joy. That's not the way God designed it. God designed sin that we commit willful decisions to rebel against God to wear us out, to exhaust us emotionally and massively disappoint us. Do you understand that? That's the mechanism God uses in our choices to rebel against him to get our attentions back on him and to turn us from sin. Do you understand? This is like the description of David, who, who the scriptures describe as the, a man after God's own heart, after his sin of adultery with Bathsheba, describing in Psalm 32 how this feels. He, he described um, it very bluntly. When I kept silent about my sin, it was like my bones were rotting in my flesh. That's what sin does. And that's what God used to turn him from sin back to his Savior. So if you're under your own like weight and condemnation of your own dumb, sinful decisions, joy's not going to be found. It's going to be miserable until you turn from your sin into your Savior. Make sense? Okay, let's define rejoicing and hope. Let's start by telling you what it's not. This is not, like we said last week, a personality. This, this phrase is not for the positive people in the room. You know, the, the ones who always look on the bright side, the ones who are always encouraging, it's just their inclination. That's not what Paul is suggesting here. He's not suggesting wishful thinking. Like, just look at something and go, man, I hope that's going to happen. You know, I, I don't know if you saw this week the, um, the story about the, the woman, 90-year-old woman, who um, her husband went to World War II and died, and they, f- they found him just like six months ago. And so she buried him this last weekend. She, last time she saw him was 70 years ago. And what she says in this article was, for 70 years, I was hopeful that we'd find him. Now, I understand what she's saying, but what, what, what truth is hope anchored in? nothing. It's like you don't know if you're going to find him and you don't know if you're not. It's just you don't know, but I understand that you, you desire it. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. Paul's talking about something different we'll talk about in a minute. It's not wishful thinking and it's not a grin and bear it hope. This is, this is classically Christian. Masks. Faking it. Like, how are you? Good. Like, that's the programmed response for Christians. Now, I don't want us to walk around and expose ourselves to everyone who asks us how we are, but, but you know what I'm talking about, right? 
the, the plastic part of us, the grin and bear it part. That's not what Paul's talking about either. This is anchored in something way more significant. So here is where this, this rejoicing in hope is anchored. First thing, it's, it's a work of the Holy Spirit. You have to understand something, that everything good, God is the cause of. Do you believe that? Seriously. Like you can't just fabricate joy. In trouble. You can't do that. It's a work of the Holy Spirit, just like life, just like when you confess him, just like when you confess sin, just like when you serve other people, when you love other people and God. The Holy Spirit is working in you, so understand its source. This kind of joy comes from a work of the Spirit in you. Its focus is on the Son. In, in other words, it's the gospel. Where does ultimate joy in hope come from? We are sinners separated from God because of our sin, doomed to hell and destruction for all eternity. Jesus left heaven, came to the earth to give life to sinners. It's the gospel. That's a true fact that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing, nothing can condemn us. God remembers our sin no more. Where does this unbelievable foundation of rejoicing hope come from? From the Holy Spirit, the work of the Son. And it's this kind of hope believes every promise of God Every promise is fact. That we can actually look at the scriptures when it says, hey, by the way, these bad things God's producing a good work in, in spite of how we feel about that circumstance, we actually believe his words more than how I feel. Like those are certain for me. I can trust them. In fact, this is the essence of what it means to have uh, joy in hope. Paul says it in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. There's the snapshot. There's the snapshot. Set your minds on the absolute certainty of salvation in Christ alone, by faith alone, and set your mind on what it means for our future. That's where hope and joy comes from. That's where it's anchored in. It grows when we set our minds on Christ and everything that's ours by faith. And by the way, we're talking about joy here. You know the difference, right, between that and happiness? Happiness is the pursuit of man. Joy is the work of God. And they're radically different. Happiness is temporal. It never lasts. Ever lasts. Joy is certain. And it's anchored in the character of God. And it's given as a gift to sinners he saved. That's where joy comes from. Unspeakable and full of glory. Joy. So, even if we classically don't express joy in troubles... The essence of what Paul is saying here is you focus on the king and the kingdom and his work in you, eventually your feelings are going to catch up because your mind has to tell you what's true, not how you feel. So first expression and response to tribulation that keeps us moving forward in love for others and love for God, Paul says, is rejoice in hope. Here's the second thing he says. Be patient in tribulation. Let me break this phrase down for you. Tribulation is the, is the word pressure. It's the, it's the picture of forging metal. You know, you pound out metal to form some, some kind of uh, 
object. It's the idea of taking grain and crushing it to make flour or, or crushing grapes to, to make wine. It's, it's pressure. The word patient is, is the idea of steadfast, stand, stand your ground, bear up under it, okay? Um, I have to confess something, and I don't know if we're the same this way, but when it comes to pressure, I am instinctively um, disinclined to it. Like if I'm feeling tribulation, I start calculating how to avoid it. Do you know what I'm saying? How can I make this go away? How can I move out from under it? But here's what Paul suggests to the church. I want you to stay there. I want you to bear up under it. Okay? Um, when I worked in a construction job, I've told you this before, we used to build foundations for commercial buildings. And they had these forms called Simon metal frames, three-quarter inch masonite plywood. They're about 90, 100 pounds a piece. We used to carry them two at a time. And I remember, this is like really, really heavy. And, and I remember hearing one of the other laborers who knew what to do. He, he would say, get under it. Get under the weight. And that's, in essence, what Paul is saying to the church about tribulations. You, you got to get under it. Don't try to avoid it. Don't try to get from, out from under it. Get under it and, and stay there. That's the way this thing is going to work itself out. So the point should be clear. If tribulation is pressure... And the kind of pressure that crushes a grain makes flour. And the kind of pressure that crushes a grape that makes wine. Biblically to a Christian, God's kind of pressure that he allows in our life produces godly Christians who love him, heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love others as himself. Get under it. Get under it. Don't try to escape it because that's the way God fashions us through, through trouble. Right? Now, I, I, have, uh, I have thought about this from lots of different angles, but you know the Gary Thomas book, Sacred, is it Sacred Marriage? I think that's what it's called. The essence of his book says God didn't give you the gift of marriage for your happiness. He gave it to you for holiness. And so I think the theme of his book would be to get under that. Like if you see marriage from the angle that God is using it, this whatever that is to reveal the sin in you and the other person, to bring both of you refined to the kingdom, then you're going to have totally different expectations when it comes to this relationship. As opposed to you going, I'm not happy, I'm out of here. You get under it. And you realize that God is revealing, exposing, building, and changing you, right? As, a, as an illustration. And that's in essence what, what Paul is saying here. Patient, get under the pressure. That's a paraphrase of what he's saying. Because God made a promise to us to do a complete makeover. To finish the work he started. Not just a positional holiness, but a practical holiness in our life. Now, I know it's not going to be completed until we get to glory. But his intention is to refine us, to refine us every, every day. To finish what he started. And suffering and trials and tribulation and pain are some of God's sharpest tools to refine us. Some of you in here could just stop me right now and go, I could, let, let me do a testimony because I can tell you how that's true. We've been under this, and I've seen God in that, and I didn't know that was in me, or I didn't know that was in them, and we've come together on this. Some of these things that we try so desperately to avoid are God's sharpest tools to refine us. Do you understand? And, and by the way, here's, here's a rule of thumb. You can count on it, okay? Broken people who get under the obvious sovereign pressure of God are people I call small people, and God becomes bigger to small people. 
You know, as opposed to the person who likes to fix the problem and avoid the, avoid the pressure, um, the people who just want to make it easy for themselves, um, they're self-sufficient. They see very little of God in their life. They have sorted everything out so precisely that they need very little of him. I mean, it's almost like, thank you for salvation. I've got it from here. Crippled people have big gods. People who walk with a limp, who know they're, they're without any hope, that they have nothing to offer, that God is exposing, revealing, and pressuring them to produce a, a, an eternal weight of glory. That, that person, this, and I call him the small person, the humbled person by God, has a big God because God is the one who's clearly doing all the good work. Does that make sense? So we've seen two things so far. In view of the mercies of God, to avoid the excuses that we typically throw up, to not love others and love God as much as we possibly can, Paul says, I want you to rejoice in hope. Don't, don't just pretend. Believe the truth. Believe the truth more than how you feel. Get under the pressure of God. Get under the weight of this tribulation because he's producing in you godliness and holiness. Here's the third thing he says. Be constant in prayer. The, the verb form of constant is the idea of um, like gluing, adhering to. It has the idea of um, persisting in. Uh, the word is devoted. Some of your texts might even use that phrase, devoted in prayer. It's exactly the terms or the phrases used to describe the early church. If you pick up Acts chapter 1 or Acts chapter 2, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of the bread, to fellowship, and to prayer. That's exactly what Paul is encouraging us to do. If we're going to keep pressing forward in love for others and love for God, then we have to be consistent in this. I don't know if you were here two years ago when we uh, kind of presented to you what we called the, the essential elements. And it was just a, a way to put handlebars around what we think the scriptures say the church should be about. Nothing novel, nothing cute, nothing so narrow as just to do one thing. It's like this is all that God said the church is to be about. Do you remember this? And we spent some time... Um, kind of making it on videos. When you come in early, it's up on the screen. It's out on the banners on the, on the commons. But here's what we ask God to do in us and with us. That, that, a, that a, a person who's trusting in the grace of God to live and work out his faith is a person who serves the body, who's intentional about his evangelism, meaning, meaning we are the voice of, of God's gospel in this, in this world. We are called to be a biblical community. We know what that means. We are not lone rangers. We are called to live this faith out in the one another's, okay? We understand that God is a giving God, and by replication, his people are a giving people. So generosity is what we want to be known for. We understand that this is the infallible word of God. Every word of it is, is profitable for, for man. And so we want to teach it with the authority that God provides. And, and the last one, prayer. And we put it on there, and I put it on there specifically because everyone would say, yeah, Christians pray, but I, I, I believe it much more deeply in this sense. I think prayer is a better indicator of what we believe than what we confess. And so if we're not a praying people, then what we confess really has no merit. James says, don't just be hearers or, you know, people who know, but be doers of the word. The practical, practical outworking of what we confess is the point of this. And so we say, yeah, we believe in God, and we believe he has power, and he can change lives, and we can depend on him, and he works in the difficult times, and, but we don't pray. We tangibly express nothing about the supernatural. We don't wait. We don't listen. We don't ask. We don't receive. And I think that, that might be um, an issue, to be honest with you.
The kind of prayer that Paul talks about is a continuous kind of prayer. And if I'm confessing honestly, it's always been a challenge. I grew up in a pastor's home. I've watched my dad do ministry for 70-some years. Prayer has always been a bell to ring in a church. And there's lots of reasons why we don't instinctively move into this. Like last week, if I said to you, love God and care deeply and work hard, maybe a lot of us could start doing things like that. But if I said, okay, here's what else we're going to do. We're going to be ridiculous prayers. And it's going to cost our time. Here's what I've learned. I'm not judging you. I'm just saying here's what I've learned. Very few people step into that. It doesn't happen. There's lots of reasons. Um, Praying like that's costly. You know, we're used to the noise. Um, We are used to being busy all the time, slowing and being quiet and just listening is not our nature. And and so uh, we'd rather not wait on God. That's a little painful for us. Church has made the mistake, I think, over the years of mistaking that money can solve what prayer could do, but it can do it faster and quicker with less pain, less waiting. Prayer can be, feel a little weird, if I'm being honest. You know, you're talking and you're not hearing. I mean, it doesn't happen to me. God has never spoken audibly to me, ever. And so most of our, most of our prayers are feel, experienced, one-sided. We don't know necessarily precisely when he's answering. Very few of our, our prayers are answered in such a specific way that you go, oh my gosh, this is unavoidable. Some are, I get it. Most of them have such a big ripple effect that maybe years from now we'd know what he's doing. And you have to be able to follow that, you know? You'd be able to trace that to know. And after all, doesn't God already know everything anyway? So what's the point? You know? I'm telling him what he already knows. Uh, Paul says to... Uh, in fact, he commands, it's an imperative, be diligent in prayer, and I don't have diligence, so prayer has to do with faith, and I'm lacking in faith, so, I mean, there's a thousand reasons why we don't do, or it doesn't look like what you see in the scriptures, and then what we do, and, and I've felt this way a lot in my life, is that we feel bad about it, like if I were to measure or use a word to describe the church when it comes to their prayer life, guilt is, is probably a lot of what I hear or see out there, and yet I would tell you if you've been around for the last 19 months, guilt is a horrible motivator. It doesn't work. All we've ever seen from these scriptures in, verses, in chapters 1 through 11, there is only one reason to be devoted to anything in God. Grace. Grace. Like the mercies of God to a people who don't deserve it compels us to love much and to love him and others. Compels us to stay put, consistent in prayer. There's no other reason. So I couldn't and I wouldn't say unto you, all right, let's get going, church. Here's a list of things that we're gonna start working at. And you feel bad because it's probably not in you and so it won't last. It never can last. But here's what we know. And Paul uses this phrase to describe everything else practically that he commands the church to do in view of the mercies of God. Do you remember? I know I use this a lot, but just just humor me for a second. Do you remember when God saved you? Anybody? You remember? Do you remember what it was like to go, oh my gosh, this is true? I remember when I got saved, 
nobody had to tell me to do anything. In fact, they had to tell me to stop doing some stuff. I was out of my mind. I, no one told me to read the Bible. No one told me to pray. No one told me to worship or go to church. No one told me to serve. I couldn't help myself. That's what Paul says in view of the mercies of God. Do you get the mercies of God in your life? Do you understand um, where you'd be apart from him? That's the beauty of grace. Grace motivates everything apart from law. Law can't get it. It condemns. Grace frees us to love him radically and love others as we love ourselves, right? So with that in mind, if we're going to be consistent in prayer, seeing God's grace and goodness is the only motivator for it. The kind of prayer that is steadfast, right? Wasn't it Jesus who said in, in Matthew 7, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more does your heavenly Father know how, know how to give good gifts to his, to his kids? In other words, look at God. If you who are messed up and jacked up know how to do some good things for your own kids, if God loves you with infinite love in spite of you, so much so that he's transforming you and making you holy people and giving you an eternal destination. If, he know, if you know how to give good gifts to your kids, how much more if you ask? You want to be motivated, get motivated by the love of the Father, which is grace. It isn't work. A devoted prayer life isn't work because its delight is in the Lord. There's no mystery here. I think we can wander away from perspective on delight. And this is what I mean. You can get busy. You can get disappointed. You can just get lazy and stop spending time with Jesus. And, and suddenly something like, hey, be devoted to prayer sounds like Mount Everest to you. It doesn't even seem appealing. It, it seems like religion to you. And, and what I'm trying to say to you here is um, that Pursue it, and then your feelings will change. Um, I reminded you of this passage last week, Jeremiah 29. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. Let me paraphrase. You get what you want. You want him. You want to sense his presence in your suffering. You want to love other people as Jesus loves. You want to love him heart, soul, mind, and strength. You want the power from the spirit to do it, not because of duty, but because of delight. You want that? Then come and get it. You can have him if you seek him with all your heart. And I promise you, you seek him with all your heart, then you're going to want it more. It's like an insatiable kind of self-feeding truth. You pick this up, and sometimes it can seem foreign to you. Stay there long enough, and it can be the water to your thirsty soul, right? Haven't you felt that before? And it will tell your feelings what to feel. It'll change your apathy and indifference and your hard-heartedness to something soft and something true, something right, because it has power. A devoted prayer life remembers its need and I'm not just talking about salvation. You guys sang this song, I need you. Lord, I need you. Every hour I need you. That's the theme of the Christian life. There isn't anything we do apart from Christ. It isn't that he just saves us and says, okay, sick him. He sends a bunch of people who are so overwhelmed with grace, who haven't yet been completed, who are still working out issues in their life, who haven't even discovered half of them. 
And we walk around with limps and cripples and he says, listen, just trust me, trust me. Trust me. What, what did Jesus say? John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. A devoted prayer life is motivated by the power of God. James says, an effective prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. Do you believe that, church? I do. I do. As much as I fail at it, I do. And I, I, I'll give you one big perspective. We believe in the power of prayer because we believe in a sovereign God. He's completely in charge. You know, we use that phrase, he either causes or allows all things to define his sovereignty. So think of it this way. Whatever he is causing, he's going to do, period. Whatever he's allowing, he's saying pray about. Ask him. Whatever's out there and undetermined, pray, pray about it because he responds to those types of prayers. Isn't this what First John says this in verse 14 of chapter 5? And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And, we, and if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that what we have requests, we will have of him. John 14, Jesus said, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. He's asking us to participate in prayer, to pray faithfully. Here's what we know, the scars of sin that we perpetrate on ourselves and other people, the world's reaction to Jesus and us will give us the ultimate excuse not to love. Make us sit down, check out, um, move away from people, get a little cynical, get a little bitter, trying so hard to get out from underneath God's pressure. But here's what Paul says. You need to look to the hope that God has clearly communicated to you that's more true than what you see with your eyes. You need to get underneath whatever pressure God's putting in you because that pressure is going to reveal you, it's going to expose you, and God's going to heal you. And you need to pray diligently because that's how we get strength in the midst of this. Constantly trusting him and asking him all the time. So I'm going to give you a couple things to think about when you leave. And I didn't mention it before, and I want to mention it now. What I have just told you is not a Lone Ranger task. This stuff happens in the context of the one another's community. If, you're, if your um, effort to love God and love others is crippled because you're such an isolated person, then you're outside of the commands of Scripture because the Bible says pray for one another, encourage one another, one another build each other up, Right? Those are the commands of Scripture. We live in the context of a group of people, the church, that he's given his life for. So if for you, you, are, you see this, this text and go, well, I haven't been patient in suffering and I don't have much hope. And I would say maybe one of the reasons why is that you're absolutely alone in the journey. You need to get connected. You can go out in the info desk after we're done and say, get me connected. And somebody will make that happen. Let me give you a little exercise to do, okay? If you are one of those people who would define yourself as suffering poorly, then I want you to step back from your particular scenario and rewrite it as Jesus is king. Okay? Just, just try this. Whatever particular difficult circumstance you're in, however you feel you've poorly reacted to it or tried to get out from underneath it, how you've not loved others and not loved him, simply back up to where you can perceive somewhere it started and just say, what would happen if he was king of all this? 
as opposed to me doing what I wanted, opposed to me avoiding him, opposed to me just simply uh, rejecting what I already knew to be true, what would it be like if he was certainly and absolutely king of every circumstance? And my guess is when you're done with that exercise, you're going to end up at a different place than you are right now. Convicted, transformed. And one last thing, um, if you were overwhelmed with uh, some trouble in your life, it's probably because you spent too much time thinking about trouble and not Jesus. I understand how it can happen. It feels like the only thing, doesn't it? But that's why we have to tell ourselves something's greater than what I feel. Something's greater than what I, circum- I see it circumstantially right now. It is the truth of what God is doing in it, how God perfected me in it, and, and the, the future glory that awaits. So we, we maybe complain too much. We are trying to find man-made solutions. Paul says, no, 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 no. Be constant in prayer. Be dependent on God in this thing. Let's think about a way to illustrate what it means to be constant in prayer because I know some people can go away, what, is, what does that look like? Like, I don't know if I can just pray all the time. I got things to do. Here, here's what maybe corny illustration. I remember in the 80s when cell phones came out. Does anybody remember that? couple of us. Uh, I had a boss who had one of these giant boxes bolted in his truck, okay? Big, huge thing attached to something in the trunk, and, uh, and I remember the day that he put one in my truck. I was so blown away that there was a phone in the truck, and I would just call my wife and say, talk to me. This is so cool. Just say something. And we'd drive around. I was just, I was amazed that there was cell phone technology. Well, now we have, every one of us almost have a smartphone in our pocket. And this is what I do with my smartphone. Anytime any illustration comes up, any thought that I have, any definition I need, any, um, any, anything I want to laugh at, uh, something I want to read, I want to occupy my time, guess what I do? Smartphone. Can I just suggest to you that's a great illustration of what it means to always be on the line with God? To always know that, hey, I've got a question. I've got a, I got a thought. I got a concern. I got a want. I got a whatever. It's like, pick it up. We got this wonderful thing called prayer. The Holy Spirit is listening, and God is loving his people. And I think if we're going to follow um, these commands as Paul gives them and not mess them up and turn them into law, then we have to understand that in the context of loving other people and loving God with everything we have, then the reality of it is I have to focus on this unbelievable truth, the gospel that not only saves me but transforms me, that he uses pressure to do it, and I have to be constantly reminding myself by prayer that it's true. Asking for the ability to live that way, right? Make sense? Let's pray together. Father, we ask for your strength and power and provision God, we ask that you would uh, give us joy, not happiness, but joy, Um, joy that's anchored in truth and anchored in promises that you make and in your character, the kind that doesn't fade. God, I pray that you would give us um, the ability to get under the trouble, knowing that the work that you're doing is, is about holiness in us. God, I pray that you would Keep us dependent in our prayer life. Keep us constant in prayer because the end of it all, the goal of it all is to love you with heart, soul, mind, and strength. God, help us do that. 
by the power of the Holy Spirit, we know it will. We pray in Christ's name, amen.